A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, beginning at verse 24. This is the last teaching of Jesus in the Gospel. But in those days after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, Keep awake. Telling time in the church has always been a challenge. I don't mean when we used to actually be in here on Sunday mornings and the second grader is tugging on mom's sleeve and mouthing, is it almost over? Or for that matter, adults who can almost taste the mimosas that they'll enjoy over brunch or maybe it's getting home in time for the kickoff of the Chiefs. I don't mean that kind of time. I don't mean so much the clock as the calendar, the rhythms of the year. Throughout Christian history, Christianity has told time differently than the calendars that Hallmark or the NFL puts out. For example, in the spring, the church observes 40 days of Lent, anticipating Christ wearing a crown of thorns and crucified at the hand of the Romans. And that is quite the contrast with a betting pool and March Madness brackets and hoping that the team you've picked to win it all doesn't somehow get killed. Or this time of year that we call Advent, the word simply means coming. We celebrate the coming of the baby Jesus in Bethlehem or on this first Sunday of Advent, the second coming of Jesus yet to happen. That's quite the contrast with Cyber Monday or shopping days, and Santa. Telling time in the church has always been a challenge. In the passage that we read, at the very end, Jesus tells two parables, both of them about telling time. In the first one, he says, when you see leaves on the fig tree, well, you know it's almost summer. Or as we might say here in Kansas City this time of year, when you see leaves blanketing the ground, you know it's almost winter. The second one could be sort of paraphrased like this. 
the, the boss at work says, hey, I'm going to be out of town, but I want you to make sure everything's working just fine when I return. But the boss never says exactly when that return will take place. And so you have to be alert. You have to pay attention. Unlike most of the parables, these are simple comparisons. Pay attention. Those are the last words Jesus says. Stay awake. This is at the end of chapter 13. At the beginning of chapter 13, the disciples come to Jesus on the Mount of Olives, and in essence they ask, what time is it? Not, not on the clock, more like that second grader. It, is, it, is it over yet? And it happens on the Mount of Olives. Every time that Dave and May and I have taken a group to Israel, we always gather folks on the top of the Mount of Olives. It's the most incredible view of the city, of Jerusalem. And then we make our way down, and you have to be very careful because it is incredibly steep and slippery. But thankfully, there's little paths that you can walk off of here and there to visit different churches. And at the bottom is the Church of All Nations, right next to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there is this sign. It's a gorgeous church, as you might imagine. But there's this sign right next to the front door that says, please, no explanations inside the church, which I have always chuckled at. It's meant for people like me and David. We're not supposed to be in there lecturing when people are praying and meditating. But it also reminds me that people don't really tune into worship on Sundays to get explanations. But I can't help it. In this case, I can't help it. This entire chapter of Mark has been nicknamed the Little Apocalypse. In contrast to the big one that we call the Book of Revelation, the Greek name for it is the Apocalypse. And that term is so misunderstood in our pop culture, but even in our dictionaries. If you flip it open, it says something like the complete destruction of the world. And you could picture zombies if you want, but it is so far removed from what the apocalypse really is, the big one or the little one. The word itself simply means an unveiling or uncovering, a revealing. And what is revealed? Well, at least three things. One, things are bad. I mean, they're really bad. In, in the time of Jesus, Rome occupied the Holy Land, and before them it was the Seleucids, and before them it was the Babylonians. And in our day, you've probably heard of the pandemic. Yeah, things are bad. The second thing is, things are going to get worse. There's no use sugarcoating it. In the time of Jesus, there was the coming destruction of the temple. By the time Mark writes, it's already happened. And in our case, the coronavirus and the flu season coming together as winter approaches, I mean, things are they're getting worse. But the third one says that neither the first nor the second has the final word. Justice will prevail. The right thing will happen. I love the line that Orson Welles, the renowned filmmaker, he said, if you want a happy ending, it just depends where you stop the story. 
It's a good way of putting it. The last couple of Monday nights, I was teaching a class, and we looked at saints of our time. People like Fred Craddock, the great disciples preacher, or Howard Thurman, the African-American scholar who was really instrumental and inspirational in the life of Martin Luther King Jr. But not just those two. We looked at the writer Anne Lamott. In her book, Almost Everything, she has this great quote. It's the first line in the book. She says, I am stockpiling antibiotics for the apocalypse even as I await the blossoming of the paper whites on the windowsill in my kitchen. Do do you hear it? That's it. That's where we are in Advent. That's where we always are. We are are worried about the end, and at the same time, we're, we're looking at flowers that are, we hope, about to blossom. That's how we live in a time like this. And it's not very reassuring, but it is the reality. One of the writers we might look at sometime in the future is Kathleen Norris. She grew up in the Dakotas, ranching and farming lands. And she says that the farmers, they always refer to next year. They they say things like, you know, next year the rains will come at the right time. Next year, the hailstorms won't won't destroy the crops. Or next year, I'll get that hay in before winter. Or maybe it won't happen that way. But still, they cling to it, right? Because in Advent, as always, we ricochet between hope and despair. Back and forth. We feel the tug back and forth. We called this Advent series Home by Another Way. There are lots of ways to take that phrase, but I'm thinking here about that heavenly home, that future, that promise of everything being made right. But it's not yet. And this second coming of Christ, some read that literally and others more figuratively, but either way, it is hope not yet fulfilled. So what do we do in the meantime? How do we stay awake I mean, we keep tugging on Jesus' sleeve and asking, is is it over yet? What are we to do? I have two suggestions. They're little things, but little things matter. The first one comes from that image of Lamont looking at these these flowers that are trying to blossom on her window. So what what if we planted something? I don't mean acres of wheat in the Dakotas. But you remember how kids in Sunday school used to bring home those little styrofoam cups and it'd be a couple inches of soil and some seeds in there and you'd put it on the windowsill and you'd wait for this thing to sprout up. What what if we did that? You know, the very first teaching in the Gospel of Mark is about a sower and seeds. And one of the last ones is about leaves on the fig tree. Signs of growth, even going into winter, could be signs of hope. The second one 
comes from a novel that I just finished, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. It's a dystopian novel, which is not exactly my cup of tea normally. I mean, yeah, I I'd read The Handmaid's Tale and the sequel, and I'd read Fahrenheit 451 years ago, you know, where the fire department doesn't put out fires, they burn books. The best dystopian novels are not so much about predicting the future as they are critiquing the present. Like, how do we value women and books and learning? And, and so Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, it's not predicting when cars will fly. It, it's set in L.A., 2024 and beyond, which was a long time in the future when she wrote. I mean, it was more than 30 years ahead. But L.A. is not something you would recognize People live in gated communities, not the kind you're picturing, but the kind where they have to try and keep marauders out. The poor are revolting. They have nothing. There's no fuel, so hardly anybody has a car to drive. There's shortages of water and food. Crime is rampant. If you call the police, you'll have to pay a fee, and that's assuming that they come or that they care. Women are raped in the streets. It is horrific. And I have to be honest, reading a dystopian novel during a pandemic may not be the best timing. I mean, I could feel the depression at times. But there's this one little subplot. It's explored a little bit by the author, but, but not as fully maybe as, as you would like. Uh, Lauren, the 15-year-old African-American girl who's the protagonist, she has a condition, hyper empathy. She feels what others feel. The pleasures and the pain of others, she feels it. Can, can you imagine feeling the pain of the family at the window at the nursing home who will never talk to their loved one again in person? Can you imagine feeling the fatigue of the ER staff and the hospital staff? Can you imagine feeling the frustration of the single mom whose kids are doing virtual learning, the frustration of the teachers, the suffering of the world? It is feeling that that leads Lauren to try to make a difference, to establish community and justice. Feeling something like that and doing something about it, in some ways you, you might think of it as planting little seeds. And you never know what will grow.